Hey guys, welcome to episode 70 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of world-class online video, strength and conditioning information, go to upmentorship.com and help support the show. This episode's guest is physical therapist and strength coach Kelly Storett of Mobility Wad and San Francisco CrossFit. Kelly is, of course, well known as the author of the New York Times best-selling book, How to Become a Supple Leopard. On this episode, me and Kelly discuss many topics, including Kelly's background and influences, problems within the training and rehabilitation fields that Kelly sees, Kelly's training and rehabilitation philosophy, his take on the knees out debate, his thoughts on Grey Cook and the functional movement screen since himself and Grey have developed a very good relationship. The biggest lessons he's learned in his career to date and much more. This was a really great episode guys and I hope you really enjoy the show. Okay, Mr. Kelly Sturette, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast. You're someone I've been wanting to get on now for a long time. Just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, which will probably be absolutely nobody unless they're living on Mars, just fill us in on your background. Oh, Lord. Well, you know, I started out as a professional dancer and then transitioned to uh, power water aerobics. No, I'm a, I'm a physio. <laughs> I'm a coach. We've been doing this a long time. And, you know, we sort of uh, stumbled into the world of human performance, you know, backwards. I used to be a professional athlete or was trying to be a professional athlete in a, a very obscure sport, a whitewater slalom. Right there, you guys have Nottingham, like it's one of the one of the centers, and you guys have Richard, Sir Richard Fox is one of the greatest paddlers of all time, and uh, you know I paddled until my hand went numb, and uh, you know when I started looking around and asking people what had happened, they were like, oh yeah, this happens all the time, and uh, you know I just remember being a you know twenty something year old kid and being like, what do you mean? You knew my hand was going to go numb. You knew that this would end my career, and then I also went down to this. Uh, this kind of sports medicine rabbit hole that everyone does. I mean, I, I had the classic issue. You know, I was training. There was, you know, I was getting all the pre-symptoms. My hand would feel weak sometimes. And, you know, and I, I you know, I wasn't mobilizing. I was stiff. I was unilateral. I thought I was going to the gym. You know, I was paddling twice a day, about 300 times a year. And, um, you know, lo and behold, I just had this overuse injury. And immediately, it was, of course, it was right before team trials, you know, and, I got cortisone and prednisone and acupuncture, massage and doctors and MRIs and, and you know no one could tell me what was going on. In fact, a physician was like, "Yeah, it looks like you have a weird like blood clot, like compressed nerve root. We don't know what that is, but uh, it's not good." And I was like, "Great, what do I do about it?" And they're like, "Yeah, you're just gonna have to let it heal." And uh, you know I couldn't turn my head. My hand was weak. And basically, I had paddled myself into a into a compressed nervous system injury. You know and had breathing problems, had, had mechanical problems, was lopsided and twisted. And, and in retrospect now, it's, it seems so obvious, but that really started me on the path of thinking, man, there's got to be a different way. And, you know, because our current model, and even the model until very recently, has been we'll train really hard. If you handle the volume, you'll make it. If you break, then we'll just back off. And then the next time, maybe you can break a little bit later. And literally, that's the conversation I've had with some really, really experienced veteran Olympic lifting coaches. They, yeah, we'll just train until you get injured, and then we'll back off, and hopefully we'll get a little further next time. And that really sort of led this idea of, boy, I think I need to go to physio school. I need to understand what's going on better, and I need to be able to prevent this. And, and that really sort of led us to where we are now, you know, 15 years later, 17 years later, of figuring out what the heck 
what the heck and seeing what the heck is going on in our athletes. And, you know, fortunately, the internet has changed everything. And the fact that you can have access to podcasts and, and so many interviews and what's happening in the world, you can really suddenly have access to the best brains on the planet. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was paddling, we thought, hey, we should be more explosive, right? We should do some plyos. And I found this book through some catalog that was an old Donald Chu. You know, uh, he was a, a thinker and exercise physiologist at Stanford. And he wrote this book about plyometric training with a medicine ball. Mm-hmm. And it was literally a little, like, flip book with stick figures. There's no internet. There's no other books around it. You know, and so my friend and I got this little stick figure thing where, like, the stick figure kind of throws the ball and we kind of figured it out. And we went through, like, a 14-pound medicine ball for, like, an hour, right? Like, we're like, this is such a great workout. I mean, we're just, we're doing this. We're gonna be... And then we were crippled for, like, four days. We couldn't paddle. We couldn't even, we couldn't even touch our abs. Like, we just were wrecked. And, you know, I think that really says sort of what's happened in sort of the revolution. Now, suddenly, we've moved beyond conversations of, should you squat? Like everyone should squat. My Tour de France riders squat, right? And it may not be to get them stronger, maybe just to reclaim position and make their hip function well, but everyone's squatting that I know. So now we can start asking the question, what does it mean when you squat a certain way? You know, what does it tell us? And what we figured out just through you know the sheer numbers of watching athletes move is that we had a, a really, really excellent diagnostic tool. And it's a diagnostic tool that everyone should understand that you know, if you put your feet together and squat down and you can't keep your feet on the ground, your heels on the ground, then everyone, including children and parents and educators and TE, PE teachers should be able to say, you don't have full ankle range of motion, let's fix that. And that's, that's the current revolution going on is that, you know, 50% of the problems, 50% of the problems that a physician will see are orthopedic in nature. And they are, you know, and my feeling is 98% of them are preventable disease. If it's not a contact injury or pathological, then the chances are that it's of your own making. You know, it's uh, since kind of, you know, reading a lot of your stuff and obviously, you know, Greg Cook, Charlie Weingroff, you know, I always found what you said so powerful in that, you know, every human being has a right essentially to look after their own movement quality and ever since that like and kind of was Dan John's influence ever since that I always try to make sure every day I do a squat I do like a push I do a hinge pattern every day because I always get nearly this fear that if I don't do it my brain's degenerating nearly (laughs) do you know if that makes any sense it's like uh, I feel like I'm aging if I don't do some sort of movement every day but uh, well think think about if we could create a template where we're saying hey here are all the the gross patterns and in our language we talk about archetypes Mm. you know and what we want people to understand is that, you know, it's use it or lose it through your whole body. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot easier to, you know, one of my friends has this great analogy. He says, look, and we can apply it towards anything, but he's like, look, if you know it's going to snow an inch an hour for the next 24 hours, you can go out with a broom and just casually sweep the snow off. It's very simple, right? Just sweep out every day, just every hour. Or you can wait 24 hours until there's two feet of snow. And then at which point you're going to need a slightly different set of tools. Mm-hmm. And so you can understand suddenly why coaches are saying, hey, let's just maintain movement and why Olympic lifting is such an excellent movement practice. Because besides bench pressing, that's the only thing that's missing, being able to pull the hand behind the shoulder in this, in this sort of inter-rotation extension position, like the bottom of a burpee or the bench press, the finished position of the row. And it's interesting, if you go around and like look at Mike Bergner, who's like one of my earliest influences in, in, in Olympic lifting, you know, he has developed this thing called the Bergner warm-up, 
And if you did the burger warm-up every day, then all of a sudden you realize you're literally, and then through a few push-ups in there, you're touching all of the corners. You're yeah. doing, you know, sort of the maintenance. And then suddenly you're like, well, whoa, 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 what were they doing in sun salutation and yoga? Well, that what they're trying to do is say, hey, here's the things that the human should be able to do. Why aren't you doing that? I mean, downward dog is arms straight up over your head, right, in like an overhead position, plus a hip hinge. And suddenly you're like, oh, I understand what people have been trying to do for a long time. So, you know, what the problem is, along with like, you know, the FMS and what Cook has done, is that people measure and touch all the things that a human should be able to do, and then they put that information away, and they don't come back to it, and nor do they test it or manage it. So what a good warm-up, you know, part of our warm-up schema is that we touch those corners, just like you say, whether or not you're going to use them today or not, but you've got to touch it. You know, and so that, that goes a long way for just maintaining position without losing it. But then also you can sort of, we understand that training is a moving target, that you are going to become stiff as you specialize in the sport. You know, if you're a runner, you're going to look like a runner. Those things, those windows are going to start to close. So the strength and conditioning movement practice that you're in has got to be about maintaining, facilitating position and good mechanics. And as a side effect, you may get stronger. As a side effect, you may get fitter. But you just can't move like crap and say, well, I have a bigger engine. Now what? We know that that doesn't work. Yeah, big time. Uh, and also with the downward dog, you're probably getting a bit of ankle mobility there as well. You're meant to get your heels down to the ground too, aren't you? Uh, weird, right? So you, you, <laughs> you see it. And so something what's nice is that you can start to evaluate, you know, hey, people have been thinking critically about this for a long time, you know. And, you know, the problem, of course, is that we know that once you've become a stiff, restricted mess, you know, more squatting doesn't change it. I wish it did, right? We, we need a different set of tools. And that's where, you know, our work through Supple Leopard has come in and said, hey, we need it. Like, you know, for example, I see a lot of good athletes, they, they go do yoga to try to be more flexible. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Yoga is not a flexibility, mobility practice. It's a movement practice. It's like going to the gym and lifting weights. It doesn't change those tissues. It doesn't, right? You're using it. That's great. And, but what it's not going to change. What we need to do then is, you know, have a set of, of sort of, improvement mechanics and you know motor control and correctives are the first first rule of business like do you know what you're supposed to do and can you do it that's why the first third of you know of supple leopard is dedicated to movement principles and dedicated to making sure that you understand what those principles look like when they apply to movements like the overhead squat or the push-up but the, you know then once we you understand what you're supposed to do so you don't make the problem worse then we can go about fixing it yeah, great stuff Kelly who, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you not only as a, a coach and a, a physician but also as a person Whew. Uh, well I'll tell you um, you know I like any good coach thinker physio I'm standing on the back of giants I mean for sure you know I mean I think it's really disingenuous to say that you know, people have been working hard. For example, Mark Verstegen, you know, at Athletes Performance Institute, now Exos, has literally been standing in this space saying, why aren't you warming up? Why aren't you cooling down? Why aren't you managing down regulation? Um, you know, I read Stuart McGill's, you know, back health book when I was in physio school, and I was like, wow, this really resonates with me, you know? And when I started physio school is when I found CrossFit, 
and Greg Glassman's early writings and thinking about movement and function really was like, for me, the unified field theory. And I read everything that Dan John had put out. You know, Greg Cook has been advocating for movement standards forever. And, you know, if you look at the functional movement screen, for example, you know, that thing, they invented that in 96 and 97. I mean, that's when Burton and, and Cook put that out. And Man, can you imagine what it would look like today yeah. if we had all the movements? Because back then, in 96, were you overhead squatting? Unless you were, like, an Olympic lifter or a track athlete, like a field thrower, chances are you were not snatching or overhead squatting, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and how did Dan John get to overhead squatting? Well, he was a thrower. You know, I mean, so see, see rule number one about that. I mean, the first time I ever had squatted, I was reading Dan John's book, Get Up. And, uh, and I literally, it blew me away. I went in with 135, and I was like, 135, 60 kilos, how hard is this going to be? And I literally, like, fell over at the gym, you know? And I was like, holy crap, this is hard. And then, uh, you know, I have to be honest, also, Pavel, you know, when, when, when I first met, you know, or first read Power of the People for Pavel, I mean, my mind was blown. And I would say... I was lucky to find all of those master thinkers at the same time, and they really changed the way I started thinking about training. And then overlaying that, I, ha- I was getting this classic education in physiotherapy, and I'm an Australian-trained physical therapist, which is a Maitland, the Maitland approach. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey Maitland was this Australian physio who really came up with a systems approach to understanding joint mechanics. But the problem is the failure to link the Maitland approach and understanding that sort of microbiomechanic stuff to actually how we got athletes to train. And the other problem is, you know, when I went through physio school, and I'm sure people like Charlie Weingroff were doing this, but, you know, I had never seen anyone really mobilize a joint for performance. We mobilized joints for injury and tissue restriction. We did a lot of movement, but no one was saying, hey, let's, you know, I took you know the jump stretch band and didn't just pull on the joint. I started to try to you know move the, the change the passive accessory motion of the joints, and you know we started you know using a lot you know instead of tennis balls we started rolling lacrosse balls and then realized that we needed even more force and you know we started working towards solving a set of problems based on sort of the language of joint mobilization. So for example, I do a mobilization all the time called the capsule mode. We call it. You know, the Donnie Thompson where you basically kneel on your hip and try to send it through your, you know, your butt and while you simultaneously, you know, distract the joint. That literally looks like, you know, a Brian Mulligan technique where you distract the joint with a strap as a physio and then you put the hip into hip quadrant. But I, my feeling was like, why do I need a physio to do this? Like, that, that model doesn't work. And the physios sometimes, the, 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 the physios that are fearful get a little bit scared because they're like, we shouldn't be teaching this to people. You know, this is our this is our pride and this is our domain as physios. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, hold on a second. Everyone has the right to take a crack at it. And we only put up mobilizations and things that we think are safe. And, you know, we always are mobilizing towards safety and towards better positions. And by the way, you, if every time your knee hurts after a squat session or a big bike ride, you can't go see your physio. That's never going to work. That's that's total bullshit. That's that's a broken medical system. And in the military, for example, there's usually one physical therapist for five thousand soldiers. Jeez. And I, I don't care if you see someone see ten patients a day, fifteen patients a day. It's going to take you a long time to get through five thousand people. In San Francisco, for example, with the managed healthcare that we have, 
right, through Kaiser. The, the wait time to be evaluated by Kaiser, which is a huge managed HMO, is 10 weeks right now. So if you have an injury, you want to be evaluated by a physical therapist, it's 10 weeks. It's CPMC, another big medical system, it's six weeks before you can go see a, a physio. And so at my point for that is, like, that is absolutely unacceptable. Why can't we identify what's, what's wrong, take a crack at fixing it, and then if it doesn't resolve it, then we go see a professional. But in the meantime, you know, we've got to work on it. Additionally, all of the good research in physio right now is showing that the, the key metric is not intra-session change, not how much change I can get in a physio and a range of motion or a tissue restriction during the visit. It's intercession change. So how much change can that person actually do at home before they see me again? And that turns out to be the real magic. And you know, when we give people not home exercises, which frankly do very, very little, except unless you're extremely detrained, right? You know, like the, the, the silly, you know, TheraBand exercises for your rotator cuff, that works if you have zero rotator cuff and never use your arms other than drink coffee. Mm. But that doesn't change anything. So giving people legitimate mobilization tools so they can address their, their stiff tissues and their joint restrictions, that should be the baseline. And it definitely has to be the baseline for the way people are training today because people are training fiercely, like fiercely. So at some point, if you don't make this tissue health adaptation part of the conversation, I guarantee you we're not going to move the ball at all. What we're going to do is we're going to see even more people get stiff and even more people dump force because we're working at such higher forces and tensions. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you kind of covered the next question, which was going to be kind of problems you're seeing within the industry, which you, you, know, you kind of addressed there. So you addressed both influences and, and problems. If I was to pose the question to you then, what is your training slash rehab philosophy or what are the big principles that you you abide by what would your answer be to that question well our idea is you know when for example if someone comes and sees me as a physio the first thing i say is show me what's going on you know show show me where you're having your pain because you know the you're not wired for musculature and you're not wired for tissue your brain is wired for patterns it's wired for movement that's why cook and burton talk about patterns right because what your brain is wired is for actual movement. And we understand what the physiology is, you know, like how to create a stable hip, what the normal range of motion for the ankle is. Like those things are those things are noted towards us. And so at some point we uh, we can be very clear about um, you know what the physiology says. So if you're having a problem with your squat, the first thing I want to make sure is that the reason you're not having a problem with your squat is that you're doing it poorly and don't understand. And that actually is a lot more simple than you think. Mm. You know, watch you know watch people squat, and if the first thing they do is you know change their spinal position to an overextended position, or, or they squat down and butt wink, that's the the stinking problem. That's the reason why we can't control the hip. That's why we're seeing associated stiffness in the musculature. Here's an example. So yesterday or a day before, I, I saw a friend who's a pretty you know he's like a category three cyclist he's not a, he's not a professional but he's got a big aerobic engine and his calves lately have been blowing up he can't get ahead of this tendinopathy and i'm like great you know i know he has a movement practice i know that he you know he's crossfitting you know reasonably with good coaches he, he moves well i've trained with him i know he's taking care of his tissues so i'm like guess what the differential diagnosis there is what 
the differential diagnosis is that there's something going on with his movement, right? He eats, he's gluten-free, he's just, he's a good athlete. So what ends up happening is that when I look at him stabilizing his spine, he doesn't have a strategy for it. So I see that he keeps overextending, and as soon as he overextends, what ends up happening is that his, his nervous system, this neuromechanical system, ends up basically trying to protect itself. And when his spine is disorganized under load, what ends up happening is that the tissues downstream get stiff. Mm. Basically, the body tries to protect the nervous system by making the musculature stiff. And then when you have a stiff musculature and generate force, then you have a mechanism for tendinopathy, right? You have a mechanism for, for hamstring pulls. This is, this is the chief reason people pull hamstrings. They run, they overextend, the body freaks out because you're basically just jerking your nervous system around at your spine, makes your hamstrings tight, boom, you pull your hamstring. Yeah. And so, you know, what happened was that once I taught him to stabilize, he was good, and we released all that neural tension, boom, immediately. Just because we taught him to stabilize, the same stabilization techniques we teach in deadlifting or squatting or pressing or anything we do. But as soon as I put him under a little cardiorespiratory load, right, put him on the bike, put him on the treadmill, immediately he defaults to breathing in this dysfunctional pattern. And so what we see is that he has a pattern problem. He has a breathing, I don't know how to breathe and stabilize problem. And he even admitted, he's like, man, I do this consciously because it's, I think it's easier to breathe. He ends up breathing up in his chest. And now we're talking about the fact that he is dumping kind of capacity out of his VO2 system, right? He's basically compromises his sort of mechanical breathing system, which also leads to this sort of inefficiency in the musculature. And that comes back to number one of our, our, our principle and concept is we've got to organize the spine first and be a lot more serious about sort of the language of the spine. Mm. And when, when we do that, then a lot of the other downstream problems end up managing themselves. And I tell you, if you're sitting down right now listening to this, you're part of the problem. You are basically creating unnatural loads on your spine that your body then is going to have to compensate for and then when you show up and exercise you're going to get hosed you know this so we fix the problem first and then the second aspect of what we do is once we've addressed the movement problem then we go after the soft tissue restriction you know it's uh when I talk to people about like you know kind of Greg Cook and yourself and DNS like I, I always find it kind of weird that they 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 come to me and say what do you think of Kelly Surrett's work what do you think of Gray's work what do you think of DNS and I'm like they're saying the same thing Kelly oh, yeah. I was like Kelly says midline stabilization organize your spine and then the one joint rule Gray would say proximal stability for distal mobility oh, yeah. DNS talk about deep line stabilization and don't be in the open scissor position oh, yeah. and have your rib cage over your pelvis PRI talk about zone of acquisition it's all about organizing your spine number one oh, yeah. So like I, I love the way you said that there that like when your spine's not organized, that's that's where all the extremity soft tissue issues the extremities are happening like you know the the the, the, the central nervous system is freaking out and then your hamstring blows, but to me you guys are all saying the same thing and when when very when guys who are definitely more intelligent than me on this type of stuff are saying the same thing it's kind of kind of the way my principles will be looking at things definitely organizing the spine well, is number one. The, the the problem has been then that we have, you know of course. Everyone should be arriving at the same solution. I mean, the the issue is, you know, um, the issue is, you know, um, you know, Buckminster Fuller, the great thinker, said, "Hey, all systems that are fundamentally correct are mutually accommodating," which means they have to agree. And so, if, if there's some aspect of my thinking that Gray Cook 
doesn't agree, either he has an error or I have an error, right? If Charlie, we might talk about it differently, we might imply it differently, but if Charlie says something that doesn't sort of integrate, and maybe, again, maybe a different technique, but fundamentally the, the foundation is the same, the principles are the same, then someone has a problem. There's, there's a type one error in someone's thinking. Yeah. You know? and, and this means that I can suddenly go into yoga and understand what's going on. It means suddenly I can go into Pilates and go and understand what's going on. And suddenly for the strength coach and the strength conditioning coach, this means they can see everything in any sport. And that's why the strength coach, strength conditioning coach for me is the center of the performance revolution. Because yeah. the principles required to move correctly in the gym, this is the safety laboratory. This is the place where I can, if you get injured in the gym, what the hell is going on? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the safest place ever. And yeah. I'm not talking about hanging it out in one rep max, right? All we're doing in the gym is saying, here are the principles for good movement. Maintain your spine, throw primary engines. Then, right, all I'm going to do is challenge that. Oh, you think you can do that? Great. I'm going to add some speed. I'm going to add some cardiorespiratory demand. I'm going to add some metabolic demand, right? I'm also going to add some, oh, low. The second swing gives you so much information about the third swing that the fourth kettlebell swing should be perfect. You know, that's how I feel about squatting. I mean, like, if you're doing a set of five, that fifth one should look good because you had five, right, chances to get better. The idea is that most of us are just evaluating the gym system by saying, did I get stronger? Did I create more wattage? Yes or no. Instead of saying, was I able to challenge my mechanics with these parameters? And suddenly, what gym is is a very excellent diagnostic place, but it's a place to reinforce fundamental movement patterning that then the athlete can immediately transcribe into other sports. You know, because we get a lot of emails from coaches who are like, hey, I don't know what you're doing with our athletes, but keep it up. And we're like, well, what we do is we teach them how to move and we clean up their restrictions so they can actually receive your coaching. And I think that's the, the crucial piece. And by the way, everyone understands this. What we've done, I think, slightly differently is translated our whole system into the modern language of strength and conditioning because everyone speaks push-up, everyone speaks air squat, right? That's the key is that everyone understands these fundamental sort of building blocks of movement. This is why I can teach in Korea and everyone understands what's going on. I can teach in, you know, in Africa and everyone knows what's going on. It's because it's a, you know, humans are designed to move. And then when we sort of understand that a lot of the classic movements are basically expressions of these archetypal shapes, then, then once you can see that, then it doesn't matter what the exercise program is. I happen to love CrossFit. It happens to be the for me, the best implementation and most flexible system for me to get strong and really prioritize conditioning and make sure that I can see all of these things, right? And, 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 and good systems are doing that, like Strong First with Pablo right now and Dan John. Those guys are doing great jobs with kettlebells. They're making it, they're like, hey, you've got to squat, you've got push-ups, you've got to lunge, right? You've got a pistol. They've got a pretty complete system there. Our set of tools across it just looks the same but different. And so, you know, once once you you know have arrived at understanding, you know, there are a lot of ways to train. The only thing we should be arguing about is how many times a week do you squat, and do you front squat more than do you back squat? That's all I care about. But everything else should be taken off the table. Yeah, definitely. I 100% agree. And again, like I mean, 
you know, we just spoke about earlier on that, you know, a lot of you guys are coming to the same conclusion. So, I mean, I mean as you said, Gray's been saying this for ages. Gray, I remember, I, I've had Gray in my podcast and similar to yourself, you can get very passionate about this. And like, I'll never forget this now, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll never forget like what this, this kind of idea he said. And he was like, you know, how dare I have to come up with a screen for someone to respect movement, first of all. And just as you said there, like it should be just taken off the table so we can just go straight away talk about, oh, you're doing back squats or front squats? Are you doing, instead of like, you know, we have to go in and go, whoa, 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 that's awful. We you can't execute it like that. That's clearly not respecting movement, so it's not so. Well, you know, and I, I can understand, you know, the other side of it from the from the sort of the in, in the the implementation side. So, you know, we at what points do like we teach in, for example, in CrossFit, we teach everyone to air squat first, and then we teach everyone to use a PVC pipe to deadlift, and then hey, we're going to challenge us with a medicine ball. Ready? Yeah. We're going to throw this little medicine ball at a wall, and all you have to do is squat again. And so what's happened is that, like every other sport ever in all time, people get greedy fast, mm. right? But universally, everyone will agree it's mechanics first, then consistency, then intensity. But guess what? As humans with big egos, we love to see how hard we can go. And, and unfortunately today, you know, we've been brainwashed by P90X and SoulCycle and all the, you know, that if I'm not feeling like I'm going to vomit, it must not be exercise. And the key is, do you have a movement practice, yes or no? And exercise can also be a movement practice, but most exercising is not a movement practice. And we have to really be clear about the distinction there because what's happened is, you know, people are saying, you know, I, I was lecturing at Stanford Medical School. And one of the, you know, I asked all the, the young physicians there, I was like, hey, how many of you guys have a movement practice? And everyone raises their hand. I'm like, that's great. Tell me what it is. And the guy's like, I'm a runner. I'm like, that's exercise, bro. And I'm like, what do you do, ma'am? She's like, I'm a swimmer. I'm like, exercise. And this woman raised her hand. She's like, yoga. And I was like, ah, movement practice. And another girl's like, Pilates. I'm like, movement practice. And this guy's like, CrossFit, movement practice. And one guy was like, I do popple stuff. I was like, movement practice. So the key is not confusing cardiorespiratory health. Like if you just need to exercise, and there's a real sort of division in the world right now because we're seeing that inactivity is the death of modern humans. Yeah. Right? And for us and my wife and the work we're doing, we see that the chair and being desk bound is really the sort of the, the poster child for inactivity, right? And so there's two ideas here. We need a lot more non-exercise activity. That's true. And by the way, you also need a movement practice. And, you know, just going to the gym and being a piece of meat and jumping on an exercise bike or elliptical machine may protect you cardiorespiratorily, but it leaves you exposed at every other movement pattern problem. And so you can suddenly start to see now as we integrate concepts around sort of neurobehavior, sort of the, the, you know, the neuro bioscience, right? Suddenly we can understand that, hey, we can tap into that. You know, if you've ever read the, the Talent Code, which I highly recommend Daniel Cole's book, you will think differently about practice. You know, we know, and, and this is from the four semesters of you know, neurobiology I had, right? But it turns out that, you know, skill is a biological adaptation where literally the neurons in your brain that are starting to fire down a certain pattern start to wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And so what ends up happening is when you repeat a movement or a pattern or a skill, which ultimately is just a set of patterns, 
then your brain starts to recognize that pathway in the nerves in the brain and reinforces it. And it reinforces it physically with, with myelin. Which, so during this process of myelination, the Schwann cells see that this pattern's lighting up. They go in and lay that pattern down. Well, that means that practice doesn't make perfect. It means practice makes permanent. And so, you know, as we were watching, my wife and I were on a date last night, and they had a little television in the corner, and Venus Williams was, uh, was it Venus or Serena? It was Serena, right? And so she's killing some, some young woman in the, in the Melbourne, uh, uh, like the Australian Open. Mm. And literally, every time she resets or is about to receive the ball, her feet are straight so that she can quickly change direction. Well, that seems obvious to anyone who works with sprinters or change direction. And like we see feet straight. The Russian who she killed, every time she would go to turn, her feet were t- angled out about 20 to 30 degrees. So her, this woman automatically is in a less efficient, less reactive, less stable position. So what ends up happening is then we say, okay, we know that that's a better way to change direction, to have the feet straight to cut, right? It's a more stable position for the foot. Right? I, I need to sprint forward. You can't sprint forward with your feet turned out like ducks. No one, you know, no one in the Olympics runs like that. That's not an efficient running pattern. Well, then the real question is, well, what am I practicing when I go to the gym? Am I turning my feet out just because it makes it easier for me to squat? Right? Because we know that, yeah, that makes it a lot easier for you to squat when you unwind your ankle and unwind your knee and unwind your hip. But what happens to your hip function? Suddenly we start to see a lot more knee wobbles. Suddenly knees out becomes an actual conversation because you've muted your hip function and more importantly you've exposed yourself to actual errors not just in the gym because we have lost track of the fact that the gym is really great and can be really interesting and I can even turn my my gym experience into a sport right but the real issue for us is that you need to be understanding that we're practicing in the gym these movement patterns that I'm going to reflect in real life so if I teach my kids to jump and land with their feet turned out, when they come down from the net, how are they going to land with their feet turned out? And suddenly now I have an, a mechanism for catastrophic ACL injury at rates that are un- unimaginable in, in high school and college sports, especially in women. So you know, I think that's where we really start to understand best practices. But to sort of deny that gets into conversations about where you need to go. You know, the Chinese are like, yeah, bring the knees in when you squat, then chase them back out, right? I'm like, great. All you do is Olympic lift? Fantastic. But the reason we Olympic lift is to teach motor patterns for kids and for adults for actual sports. And if you fire your knees in before you stand up, what do you think happens when you go jump for the ball? Your knee is going to come in, right? And what happens when you land? Your knee is going to come in. And that knee wobble is what gets destroys meniscus, destroys bones, destroys ACLs. And so we have to be very clear that we have to ask, is this a sport-specific hack that doesn't bleed over into other issues? Or is this a problem, you know, or is this a valid technique that is universal? And suddenly you can understand why everyone is saying, why the hell are your knees tracking in? That's not, that's not okay. That's a good point. Just a question that's kind of uh, arise while you were speaking there. Something I've always kind of wanted to ask yourself was, how do you go about? So you, you know, you see a movement dysfunction in someone or a disconnect. Like again, you were talking about like an overextended position in the lumbar spine, and you know, I think any good coach or practitioner can fix that stuff in a very static environment. You know, where you're kind of you know if you want to use the term you know coaching the person 
you know kind of more cognitively at a conscious level even though like everyone's nowadays talking about you know everything should be subconscious Gabriella Wolf's external cues and all that but how do you go about then if you like holding that correction when they start to fatigue because that seems to be the big problem I always see like you know like well yeah, yeah let me stop you there so yeah. so two ideas one is remember I'm practicing these fundamental positions in every movement that I do yeah you know so for example we had a <clears throat> a nice lady she's a you know middle-aged mother of two she was having problems in her neck when she lifted overhead right it would just light her up and I was, she was like so I'm afraid to go overhead and I was like you think it's the overhead lifting that's the problem I was like show me your rowing position boom crank neck I'm like show me your position doing a push-up crank neck show me air squat crank neck show me your deadlift crank neck show me your handstand crank neck and I was like do you see what you've practiced Every time she did a pull-up, she threw her chin over the bar, yeah. right? And what the key is that, you know, this isn't your spine for squatting. This is your spine for everything. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, every movement that we do reinforces the same basic pattern. And so we can get move beyond, hey, you should be a gymnast because gymnasts are good athletes, or you should squat because that magically makes you a better athlete. We can say, well, what that does is it really formally challenges my ability to to tie my hips in and my hips and my powerful hip extensors into my spine. And so if you see me fatigue, we're done. We can back off load and if that doesn't, we're done. You know what I mean? That's the key. And, and you know, we, we have some tolerance in the system. I have never seen anyone mess themselves up performing air squats. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. You, know, you know how many people wreck their back doing slow goblet squats? Oh yeah, that's none in the history of the world. <laughs> you know, and that's that's why we teach those things and can reinforce those things. Yeah. But, you know, Louis Simmons has broke his back twice, right? That's a classic Louis Simmons story. Two fractured backs. Mm. He basically spondied twice under huge loads, overextended into the belt. That's a, it's a west side style technique. And that's so much heavy overextension, they basically had two pars fractures in his spine that he had to get fused, right? So if you're squatting and you fracture your back, for me, I'm like, hmm. Maybe there's something wrong with that, and if that's the only technique that you can do to set a world record and you're willing to break your back, then I value that, but don't pretend that that's the technique we're going to teach kids or everyone else, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a dead-end technique, and that's what we really say. Is, is that a dead-end? Is that a hack for a, for, a, for a skill, or am I just going around a problem? You know, yeah. So you know, if the only way you can squat is with a belt and you're heavy extended and you're leaning into the belt, well, I'm like, well, shit. That's not going to work when we're playing, you know, rugby, you know, and no wonder we start to see so many injuries that look like spondies or stenosis or extension sensitivity, because not only have we practiced that, but we've reinforced it because what we valued was the squatting yes or no, or, or an artificial depth in squatting, you know, mm -hmm. look, if you completely reverse your lumbar and round and tuck, you know, as you approach parallel, then maybe you don't have the capacity to get below parallel yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what are we even talking about? You know, we, what we need to say, and, and look, everyone knows this, we can start with a fundamental assumption that we all agree pretty much that the definition of functional movement is that I work in a wave of contraction from trunk to periphery, from core to sleeve, yeah. from axillary skeleton to peripheral skeleton. Well, let's take that a step further. If that's true, and what I'm saying is not just it's good movement, but it's organization yeah. around that, right? So my golfers overextend, then they address the ball, and they wonder why they have rotation problems. I'm like, well, you overextended, your spine is in a crappy position. It's easy for you to keep your chest up 
and dump your pelvis forward. But then what happens when you rotate into that pattern times, you know, ad infinitum? And, well, you end up with, you know, movement problems and, and overextension problems. When I have my athletes brace and then address the ball the same way they address the ball when they deadlift, or I have my baseball players practice sequencing before they throw the ball, or, uh, you know, suddenly we can reduce movement variability and movement error, and then we can just actually find out who's the best thinking athlete, not whose spine can take the most abuse before it finally breaks. Yeah, so, uh, um, you know, essentially you're saying that the, the, there's just a, funder, a fundamental underlying principle to, to like, essentially all movement. Because I'm the same, I teach the same, in like, you know, when I'm, like, you know, I teach courses, like, uh, strength and conditioning courses here in Ireland, and I'm, like, when I teach kind of the proximal stability, distal mobility, like, I might be showing a half kneel and, you know, one-arm kettlebell press, and I'm, like, right, organize the spine, then we'll go overhead, and then, like, for outside doing wall drills, I'm, like, it doesn't change here, your spine needs to be organized, so, you know what I mean? Like, everything's it's, the same. That's right. It's interesting that in gymnastics, we're, like, squeeze your butt, point your toes. If you're in the air, and your butt isn't squeezed, your toes are pointed, I guarantee you're not in a good position, Yeah. Exactly, right? Yeah. And it's that simple. And we give it the people those cues. But then the second part of that is, well, why is it so difficult to maintain this position? Mm. And it may be that I'm just so stinking weak, or maybe that I have passive mechanical drags on the system that I've established through decades of poor movement patterning. Right? Yeah. So yeah. if your QL is tight and stiff, if your psoas is tight and stiff, if your anterior hip capsule is stiff, well, then what happens is you're going to automatically fatigue and default into those overextent lost lumbar stability positions, comma, or you start adding speed, you can't actually buffer it because you're not connected to the ground. And that's the issue. Is no wonder we like Olympic lifting because that change in direction, change in, in, in position, right, where I, where I change shape and change direction suddenly, you can, I'm basically disconnecting you from your your artificial position, right? So, you know, the example we give all the time, we do at our course, I'm like, hey, just squat down, right? And people are like, no problem, they nail it. And then I'm like, great, now we're just gonna drop into the squat. And suddenly, as soon as they drop into the squat, right, we start to see the movement errors going up because they can't hide their tip hip capsule or they're, because their foot's not connected to the ground, they can't sort of bounce against the walls of their limited ankle restriction, right? Their ankle, limited ankle range. And then I'm like, okay, well now we're just gonna kneel and jump up into a, a squat, and as soon as we have people do that, what do we see? Feet turned out like ducks, arches collapse, knees wobble, overextension. I'm like, what the hell happened? Well, what happens is you can't hide your biomechanical deficiencies. So no wonder our idea is, hey, do you understand what you can do? Great, let's reinforce that. And by the way, let's address all your biomechanical restrictions. And the reasons we're obsessed with joint capsules on mobility wad is that we see that the joint capsule, in our estimation, is usually accounts for upwards of 50% of the movement restriction. So you can do all the I's, Y's, and T's you want. You can do all the scap stabilization stuff. But if your thoracic spine is stiff, you're just wasting your time. Yeah, big time. Uh, just a, a, a kind of a, a devil's advocate question that I, I'd pose is that we do see a lot of very good athletes and they have a lot of movement faults, would you still correct that? If, if a world-class athlete came to you but they didn't have any pain or, or any issues, would you, and, and there was big movement faults with their technique, but yet they were the best in the world, let's say, would you still go after fixing that technique? And just before you answer that, I always remember the story of Charlie Francis. He had a great female sprinter, and she had an SI issue, or her pelvis was out of alignment, and then they decided to realign the pelvis, and then she never ran well again after that. And he, he also said that was a big regret that they kind of tampered with it. Well, I think that's 
think you, you bring up a couple things. One is if you were a Ferrari and you were racing and you beat all the other, you know, you beat all the other, uh, you know, little cars, right? But you knew that the handbrake was on the Ferrari. Would you would you take the handbrake off? You're like, I'm still winning. Uh, yeah, like this this is the the question. Is it? Ah, like... uh, no. So I'll get there because the issue is we're not interested in if you're the best in the world. We're interested in saying, are you the best for you? You, yeah, yeah. And this is a crucial, crucial piece for every strength and conditioning coach to understand. You are not a sport technique coach, mm. right? And what I can tell you is they may have adjusted her pelvis, but they did not fix her movement pattern. Yeah, because the but... reason the pelvis was in a bad position was that she was compensating for a dysfunctional pattern, right? So they adjusted that and they took away her stability without giving her a schema or reinforcing a pattern. Yeah. So what's crucial to understand is that, you know, I have no problem working with the best athletes in the world. One is that we're always giving them safer positions. And two, we we mobilize into normal ranges. Where it's not like we just pull on the tissue. You don't see a lot of crazy static end range stretching where we just hang on the tissues, right? Mm. But what we do say is, look, the our experience is that witnessing and through thousands and thousands of hours of this is that if you give an athlete their available range, they will become immediately more coachable. I don't mess with the swing of any of my athletes. I help them become better movers in the gym and I reinforce their positions and then they can go off and express that automatically in their sport. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. And the, yeah. and the other piece is that we don't spend hours and hours and hours mobilizing. You know, our the top end of what I want you to do today is it's 15 or 20 minutes per training session, which means that I get a dose and then I get a response. And then I get a dose and then I get a response. Does that make sense? And so if we address your hip capsule, guess what? You're going to automatically run more efficiently tomorrow because your hip capsule is done. So, you know, did they take a systems approach with her? Well, probably not. They they adjusted her pelvis, but her, her hip capsule was still tight, and mm-hmm. her stabilization was still tight, and no one looked at her breathing pattern. You know what I mean? They just they just were like, oh, that's not the right place. Let's fix it. Oh, it fell apart. Versus saying, do you understand the fundamentals of how your spine works? Can I see that? Because what the problem for most position coaches is that they can't see what's going on at speed unless they've been doing it for 30 years. Like, you know, Coach Dan Fass at the World Athletic Center is a brilliant track coach. Yeah. And he can sit in any position. He doesn't have to have a perfect view. He can see what's going on. He can watch multiple athletes in a while. Well, that's because he's been doing that for as long as he's been, you know, I mean, as long as people have been running, that guy's been coaching. And so the issue, though, is for a young strength coach is saying, hey, I see this problem in your squat. I guarantee you she was overextended when she squatted. Guarantee you, Right. That there were, we saw this instability that if I had her push press, I would see that her reload and you know that re-dip, she would, she would lose her position. And suddenly her SI basically becomes jammed because her, her psoas turns on in a reaction to what? Trying to create a stabilization mm. out of a deficient pattern. So optimizing movement efficiency is always what I'm trying to do. And it never, in my experience, it has never messed up anything ever. Yeah. In fact... You know, when we work with our U.S. ski team kids, you know, suddenly they're like, hey, I, you know, we're having a hard time reversing early. I can't even get on this edge. I'm like, well, you don't have any hip internal rotation. So we fix the hip internal rotation, and immediately they go put it to use, and their, their skill is 
is done. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does absolutely. Just w- one quick question. I just want to ask about midline stabilization. I know we we've gone past that, but just one question I've always wanted to ask. It's just purely one of my own is um i remember you did that it was like the online sort of uh webinar well it wasn't a webinar it was like an online seminar yeah in your facility and just some, you spoke you know you, you were speaking about organization and then you kind of spoke about doing this like 20 percent brace it's also in your book and the question i've always wanted to ask was that you know i went to dns and and like i think the fact that you say 20 percent like it means it's just semantics we're saying the same thing here but dns would always always say like that one of the worst things someone could do chronically now not acutely but chronically is to actually default to bracing all the time because it, it you know if you have to walk around in a high threshold state it'll actually wear away your joints over like years and decades more like for most people whereas you know they'd want you to do low threshold activities with that more deep stabilization system but you were kind of talking about you know bracing but again i know you're only kind of talking about 20 percent, and i suppose you're just going back to motor learning and, and getting the person to get used to that position then eventually it becomes subconscious rather than conscious is what, I, we, what we see is that people literally turn their entire system off so you're saying hey deep stabilization what do you think i'm talking about yeah, I mean, yeah. you know can you maintain there's no point unless you're laying down that you get to turn the, the musculature of your trunk off. Mm. That's called tone. That's what resting tone is, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when, we, when we're asking people to do very low-level exercises, we're asking them to actually create basic background tone. So 20% is a euphemism for, is your, are you, is your trunk stable or not? And if you, if you touch me right now, I mean, you know, what's the number? 17.2, 8.4? Yeah, yeah. You know? I know what you're saying. I, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not taking 20%. Literally, I'm, yeah, go on anyway. Well, the, the issue is, you know, what we see is that people have a strategy. I'm either off or I'm always on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or 100%. And I'm always, I, my, my jokes, I'm like, cobras don't flex their cobra hoods all the time. That would yeah. be exhausting yeah. and dysfunctional. And you can't move quick. But what I see is that people default to, bone-on-bone end range to ligamentous integrity. They basically hang on their joints. I call it hanging on the meat. And I'm like, you can't hang on that. You have to have all your systems working, right? And, you know, and part of that system is your diaphragm and part of that system is your pelvic floor, mm-hmm. right? And if you're walking around sticking your abs out, whoa, flexing your cobra hood all the time, you know, that's not going to work. In fact, you're going to get your ass kicked. But, you know, we, you know, where do we start to address all these things? Well, we address them every single day. In our warm-up, you know, we're always working on these positions. You know, we do a lot of carries and static holds in our gym. You know, like one athlete will be working, the other athlete has a, has a plate over their head, and we're seeing them default into bad patterns and stop breathing. That's what we're, we're fixing. So, you know, the key is, are you practicing this? And all of these really advanced one-off concepts, which really work great, like one-on-one master coach or one-on-one physio and an actual athlete, but the real problem is we need to be able to scale these and we have to be able to integrate them into the actual language of strength and conditioning because at some point I still got to get my athletes fit and I still got to get them stronger. And I, everything, you know, the Z Health guys sometimes are like, hey, everything's got to be perfect before we load it. I'm like, uh uh-uh, uh, that's never going to work. The humans have enough tolerance to make mistakes. We just have to minimize those mistakes in the gym. It doesn't have to be perfect, it has to be near perfect as a process does yeah. that make sense yeah yeah kind of like the old saying if you aim for perfection you what you'll get is excellence that's right that's right so that that's where we we start you know we hammer 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 athletes like we had a couple of visitors yesterday and this guy 
my coach walked over and was like, hey, you, that is not an efficient neck position when you deadlift. The only way that a guy could pick something up off the ground, his, his lumbar looked great. But we're talking about his, his cervical spine, which mm. people seem to forget is somehow connected to your spine, right? So his lumbar looks great, his bracing looks great, but his head is cranked back to allow him basically to round his upper shoulders so that he can dress the bar. And, you know, I, our coach walks over and fixes it. The guy defaults back because it's the only way he can lift. And then I had to walk over there and, and stop him and insist that, you know, that the, the movement is correct on, on the gross stuff. I'm like, you know, I'm like a little deviation in your neck. But when I see tissue hinges, when your neck fat is starting to roll up on the back of your neck, <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, that's, that's a red flag. And so I think that's, that's the key. And then, you know, insisting that the guy be in a good position. And eventually I was like, hey, I know you're a visitor, but I'm going to kick you out of my gym if you do this again, and the guy was, oh, perfect, right? And, uh, you know, I think the problem is that we're not insisting on excellence. And what you're finding now is a revolution. Coaches like Shannon Turley at Stanford have just done an amazing job. So many of the coaches I know in the who are really excellent at the best CrossFit gyms, then they are movement ninjas. You cannot get away with anything in their gym. And that's what it is. This is deep practice. Yeah. This is like you sitting down in front of the maestro and really practicing. This is not about becoming an unconscious piece of meat. Strength conditioning is the thinking man's game, thinking mm-hmm. woman's game. This is not just about how hard you can work anymore. That ship has sailed. I think uh, if I don't ask you this question, you know, uh, people will hang me out to dry. So, you know, let's get into the, the old knees out because before we came online, you were like, you've, you've even thought about this more over the last few months. But uh, before you get into the answer, just so there was a conversation with yourself and, and a few guys on the um, on the offline episode on, on YouTube, and uh, I'm good. Well, I, I know Quinn uh, Henoff pretty well uh, just through email, and I've interviewed my podcast before. But essentially, uh, I think just to give some background, the guys were saying that they were seeing people squat with feet very straight and pushing their knees out into an excess varus position, and they felt that it might be a miscommunication from what. Uh, you- wait a minute, excess varus position. How is that possible with your foot on the ground? So start, start right there. If you put your feet together, yeah, right, and and squat down, where do your knees go? If I put my feet together and squat down, yeah, where do they go? They get they automatically go out. Oh, so is that dangerous? <laughs> I, I wouldn't think so. I, anyway, I'm just the messenger. I'm, I'm just keeping. I know, but what I'm telling you is that we have enough. There is a, there's an end range, but if your foot comes up off the ground, you're lifting your big toe up off the ground. So Quinn is a great example, right? Of you can go on YouTube and watch an Olympic lift. Because what I'm arguing is, I'm like, hey, we have to cue a stable hip during the squat. That's, yeah. what I, that's what the bottom line is. So one of the things that I'm a big fan of is I'm like, hey, show me your solutions. Show me your thinking. Yeah. Right? Because I can tell you what my thinking is, and here's the problems I'm seeing in the gym and trying to, sl- and trying to solve it. So you can go on and watch Quinn Olympic lift, and he lands with his feet turned out, and guess what his knees do? They slam in the middle. Right? They slam in as he tries to catch the clean. And I'm like, oh. That's what you're reinforcing. That's what you mean by knees out. It's okay to have a gigantic knee wobble in the middle of a loaded movement. No coach is ever going to say that. So one thing, I'm like, you're talking about, hey, you don't like this cue. And remember, our cue is a, is a, relation, a conversation between a coach and an athlete. Mm-hmm. And yet when I actually watch you lift with your feet turned out, your knees slam in. So I'm having a hard time taking you seriously. One of the problems, their, their point is, look, you know, they're like, hey, we saw this when we got the foot straight. And people, we were asking people to maintain a stable hip and stable back that they were having issues. Well, I'm like, okay, let's think about that for a second. First off is if someone is missing overhead position, right? 
you, you can't get your arms right over your head. If they do pull-ups or press, what happens to their shoulders? They're, they're going to do it in a compensation pattern. Most likely get pain. Okay. So is it a problem with the cue to put your arms up all the way over your head, or is it a biomechanical restriction? This is a biomechanical restriction, yeah. Exactly. And what ends up happening is you cannot argue. I mean, look at the receiving positions in the snatch for all the Chinese or the jerk. It is knees motherfucking out, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's the only position where you can maintain a stable hip and maintain a stable arch. And so if you exercise and, you know, look at the monster walk, for example, right? Monster walking is a great example of people have their feet straight. And what are we teaching when we're pushing into the band? What is that cue of pushing into the band? Knees out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we sort of alluded to this earlier, but it's not okay to teach compensation mechanisms to people that set them up for dysfunction. Remember that this is a continuum that, hey, you know, if I'm slowing people down, you know, if I ask people to air squat fast, just air squat, I see knee wobbles all the time. You know, if I, if I have a big wobble on my elbow when I bench press, what happens to my, that's got to be okay, right? It's, it's okay to let the elbow flare out a little bit because it's okay to let my knee flare in. So when I bench press and my elbow flares out, what happens to my shoulder? It's unstable. Ah, but that's okay for the hip, eh? <laughs> well, so, uh, no, I would say no, yeah, but I, I, so, I get what you're getting at. You know, I think, I think the bottom line is what we're really talking about is foot position, mm. you know? And, you know, when you turn your feet out at, you know, 20 or 30 degrees, what I can tell you is that your hip, comp- your hip function is compromised. I can test this. We've done this. I've pushed the knees in, and you're, you're literally collapsed. And if, you, if you're squatting or practice reinforcing standing the hip and your arch collapses, that's a fail. That's, that's not a safe position. Mm. And I will argue that if I look at your feet, and I'm not talking about your artificial Olympic lifting shoe elevation so that your torso can be upright. I mean, that position too, but that's, that's, a, that's a construct. You know, you can't be wearing a belt and knee wraps. And, uh, and by the way, the Olympic lifting community, they're some of the most dysfunctional, injured people I've ever met. Yeah. You know, they're always tweaked. What we're always looking at, again, is let's ask the question, why are we Olympic lifting? To lift more weight? Great. Continue to do whatever you need to do to be great at your sport, and that's up between you and your coach. But if I'm teaching kids to jump and land, and it's okay to have a knee wobble, then, then what are we teaching? What I'm teaching is a whole level of dysfunction to athletes. Just because someone can't put their arms over their head and pain-free doesn't mean that the technique isn't incorrect. Doesn't mean that the, the stabilization is not correct. And all I have to do is go, go watch Quinn lift and when, when his knee wobbles in, ask him what his technique is to keep his knee out. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that all makes perfect sense. And you, you remind me, too, of what Charlie Weingroff says, you know, with, with regards to, you know, Charlie Dahl would say... Uh, you know, when Charlie talks about packed neck or certain ways of lifting, yeah. and people all say to him, "Well, look at this Olympic lifter, Charlie." And Charlie goes, "Yeah, he's he's in competition lifting a max. He's like, all bets are off when that happens. Like, if that's in your sport, fair game. But he's like, don't do that in a gym with an athlete." Well, I think that's a crucial understanding is that you know when we're at limits, what are we really doing? We're testing the limits of our ability to maintain mechanics. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And what we think is that the person who maintains the best mechanics at limit is the most efficient athlete, mm. right? But if I'm testing the limits of my position, I mean, you know, early on, Greg Glassman, this is a good example. So if I can say it's okay to break down and see this knee wobble, right? Because I'm like, show me what your technique is. If, if you don't like where my foot position is, move your feet wider. You know what I mean? 
Like, go ahead and get up off the chair, and, and where are your feet going to go? Your feet don't track your toes. Your feet actually go outside. That's how you maintain a stable ankle. Your feet actually tracks the outside of your foot unless your foot is turned out. So if you turn your feet out to 20 or 30 degrees, where does the knee track when you squat? It tracks out. But because your feet are turned out like ducks, what does that hide? It hides the fact that your knees are actually tracking out. If I take a picture of you squatting, your knees are going to go out as you squat from above, right? Just track your knees. Set up a GoPro camera. Watch yourself squat. Watch where your knees go. They go out. And what I'm telling you is that if you don't, if you don't, if you're on the outside, I mean, we forget the physiology of the human, that hinge, you know, I'm either going to create a ton of shear forward or I'm going to minimize the, the shear by maintaining verticalized shin and also keeping the knee from being too far out the foot. Can you squat with no hip torsion and shoving your knees out? Yes. But our concept is hip torsion, not knees out. Knees out is an expression of hip torsion. Yeah. Right? Just in one thing I just want to ask if, before we run out of time is, do, do you think everyone should squat feet forward? Because, I mean, there obviously is people who have hip torsions and different hip structures that may not allow them to squat feet forward. But I know you seem to be a big proponent of neutral foot, but like, do you still think you can achieve a good um, like tripod foot even if your foot is slightly turned out? Well, of course. Uh, that's, you know, uh, that's all I the, the, the issue is this. One is, you know, I'm, I'm, if the only way you can squat is with your feet out to maintain a good position, right, then that's a starting place. But that's not a place where I end. I'm always working towards maintaining right and maximizing your availability because what i guarantee you and this is this is where the conversation becomes a name frankly is that if you have full internal rotation of your hip and full flexion full dorsiflexion and inversion inversion of your calcaneus like you actually have normal range of motion as a human then the conversation we're having is moot because you can just do it and and doing so actually creates stability Mm -hmm. what i can unequivocally tell you is that nearly every athlete i see has significant biomechanical restrictions right? Feet are totally collapsed. And if you're advocating your technique, because that's the only way you can squat, then that's not even a good argument. That's a specious argument. So the real issue is, you know, when we establish joint range of motion for people, right? We, are you telling me that, okay, well, it's okay to turn my feet out to squat. Great. I, that's the only way you can do it. That's a starting conversation, but Mm. it's not where I leave you. Is that where you'd have people run? Yeah, I, I know. I, I get. I get what you're saying, but like, uh, the, I suppose what I'm saying is, there is like, say, people now. They're they're in the rarity, I oh, suppose. Let, let me stop. Let me stop. So, okay. are you talking about the absolute extreme outlier of? So, let me give you a good example. My wife has hip dysplasia, right? She has very very shallow hip. Diagnosed from birth, juvenile juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, right? Oh, she walks with her feet pretty straight. Yeah. When she started, her feet were so turned out. Yeah, and in yeah. Olympic lifting shoes, right? Yeah. And over the past five years, her feet are so much straighter, mm. right? But understanding that that, you know, is that normal? And what, what you get is this really, really, like, damaging uh, apologetics. Because what you're saying is everyone has is a special flower with unique hips. What a bunch of horseshit that is. Mm. When we establish normal ranges of motion, normal values of range of motion, that's across a population, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you're telling me you have the Scottish hip and like your hip sockets are, yeah, what that means is that you'll reverse earlier in your squat if you do a pistol, yeah. right? 
but you should still be able to pistol because pistoling is the expression of normal hip range of motion, normal ankle range of motion. Yeah, yeah. The end ranges, we'll see some variability, but we're not even talking about end ranges. We're talking about squatting, which is a mid-range activity. Okay. So what you've done is you said, well, you know, and you're not even saying how you got there. Oh, you've been squatting like this for 30 years. <laughs> Why do you think Wolf's Law is use it or lose it? Yeah. Or, or, or reshaping of the bone to, to, you know, we know that from, you know, this is, this is the asinine part where we're having conversations with coaches who don't have backgrounds necessarily in, in physio mm, or mm. Like anatomy. And, you know, what ends up happening is like, if, I, if I adjust you or change your fascial system, we know that on six months to 18 months later, you'll actually look different on radiograph. Yeah, yeah. The bones reform, things remodel. But what you can't argue for is an impinged ankle, an open knee, right? And, and at some point, you have to have a set of techniques and cues that start to fix this problem. Yeah. So, you know, normal range of motion is squat all the way down and take a shit. Mm. And if you can't do that, that's not normal. And, and it's going to be one in 10,000 people. You know, I have some yogis who come in who are so hypermobile that we can't use that cue. So we don't use that cue. They physically have to memorize where it is to be stiff in the range. They don't have the hip capsule cue to be stiff. That's one in what, you know, 20,000 athlete hours we see that. Yeah. So at some point, let's understand the physiology. And more importantly, what's the goal? Maintain the stable spine. So what I see a lot of is a lot of stenosis, low lumbar dysfunction, right? Uh, uh, narrowing like like functions in the low back. And all I have to do is have you power clean. And if you power clean and shoot your knees forward, you physically cannot stabilize your back. You can watch someone's lumbar kadoosh overextend. And so what you've done is you've taken a local, you have a local hinge fault at that lumbar, like that lumbar, you know, sacral junction. Right? And what you're going to see is a power overextension. And you can do that for a while until you can't do it. If you jump and land with knees out, you'll see that the, the spine doesn't stay, remain stable. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest point that you made there that, that kind of clarified stuff in my head was that, you know, that uh, a lot of people may be saying, oh, you know, the feet straight, knees out is the wrong cue. And you're kind of, what you kind of said there was, well, the few people who can't get into those positions and they're trying to get into those positions, you know, that's going to be an issue. Like, whereas if they cleared up all those dysfunctions, you're kind of saying that people should have, well, should have the ability to get into these positions. So that, that is no... That's right. And, ha and how about this? So you're telling me that I should, turn the, I should turn the feet out because that's easy. Okay. So now explain how I'm going to teach that to children, would you? No, no, no. When you squat deep, you need to, if you anticipate that you're going to jump and land deep, you've got to turn your feet out to 30 degrees. So in the air, when you're jumping down from the ladder, make sure that your, your feet are turned out at 30 degrees, right? Because mm -hmm. we've got to unimpinge your hip. That's not what fucking happens. And yeah. if you hear me how fired up I am, we teach kids to jump and land in gymnastics with their feet straight and knees together. Why is that? Yeah. Because... Yeah it automatically blocks that position and keeps them safe. Yeah, they yeah. cannot collapse. Yeah. You know, if you land and if your knee comes to the ground with your foot straight, you don't tear your knee. Look at Ed Cohn's knee tear. When he's squatting with 1,000 pounds on his back, his foot is turned out, his knee comes in, and he's in, a, he's in a much more vulnerable position. I understand that that's power thing, and that was how he squatted. But all, by the way, Ed Cohn also has had two hip replacements. Mm, mm. You know, and the other idea here is like, look, this isn't for about glory in your 20s. No one cares if you can deadlift 500 pounds. That's not even a good deadlift, right? 
It's not until you're deadlifting like Andy Bolton that your deadlift technique even gets anyone's attention. Yeah. So you know, we're looking at what are the best movement patterns for life and not the Ponzi scheme that like collegiate sports is or professional sports, which is, hey, let's use you up, and then when you're 32, we're going to kick you out. And by the way, you've had three herniated discs, and you have facet hypertrophy, and yeah. you've torn your meniscus, and you know, you've had two ACL tears, and you know, good luck for the next 70 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem is that we're making these – we're playing the short game, and we need to start playing the long game. No, listen, I, I can completely understand like your frustration because, I mean, like, I, I think just personally myself, most things in, in any industry, but particularly our industry that we're in, like the fitness industry, strength and conditioning, f- f- you know, phys- physio, physical therapy – a lot of it just comes down to like misinter- misinterpretation and false assumptions all the time. Like I, I'd be very, uh, I'd be good friends with the FMS guys. Like and the amount of times I have to, like, like defend the FMS, and then people think I have like this spiritual affiliation to the FMS, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm like, I don't. It's just that you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, if you're gonna if you're gonna criticize something, you better know the topic inside and out, and then also have a goddamn solution. Don't just criticize it based off a false assumption like nearly everyone's criticisms are based off false assumptions so i just i always i always like to give my guests right. i always like to give my guests opportunities to come on and be like listen here's your opportunity now to you know answer the you know the false the, or to, to answer questions based off false assumptions because people are always like oh well like this is this and it's like yeah but that's not what he's saying <laughs> you, you know well, you're, and, show, and, show, and more importantly show me your solutions the other thing we've seen yeah, in the internet yeah, big time yeah. is the, the death of expertise you know and frankly, Jacob Zipkin is not an expert. You know, he's not. You know, you know, people don't know about that panel. Is that I went on to debate Bob Takano. That that was the person I showed up to talk about, right? And uh, and what ended up happening is I had no idea Quinn or Jacob would be there. I, I showed up and that morning, and they were like, "Oh, by the way, Bob's not coming. These two guys are coming." And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Like, who are these guys? You know, I I knew, you know, I knew Long Kilgore." You know, he's, and he's an expert in the field, you know, and what I can tell you unequivocally is that, like, the bait and switch that went on there was unbelievable. I mean, yeah. that was unbelievable. I should have not even agreed to go on, but, you know, I'm like, let's talk about this, yeah. you know? Well, I just, uh, I got, I've interviewed, uh, I don't know Jacob per- personally and all, I've interviewed Quinn and, like, what I know of him, he's a really, really, like, to me, he's been a great guy and, uh, and we, we addressed that question on the show, so I mean, you can listen to what he, he spoke there. But he, he also said that he's used time for you and said that you were a massive influence in him becoming a physical therapist. I think the problem is, too, people always, like, I, I, I interned with Mike Boyle, I'm very, very good friends with Mike Boyle, and Mike would always say, like, you know, you can disagree without disliking, and people automatically think that if you disagree with someone, you, you know, you automatically hate the person for some reason. But, but, uh. Yeah, well, I think you also need to look, you know, for, for example, I think Mike Boyle, who was just, you know, brilliant, you know, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, one of his, you know, head guys, um, you know, Brendan Rarick is, you know, is moved to California and trains at our gym, you know, and yeah. what we always look at is, well, how is the coach, coach sees, all these people see this problem, well, maybe they don't see it, they just don't give a crap about the low back, and I do see that too, right, they just don't care, yeah. they're, they're just not, not in their schema, but what I do see is that a lot of good coaches are trying to solve a set of problems, and what we need to be at, interested in is saying, how are they solving that set of problems? Yeah. And what is specifically their cues? Because what is their interpretation of the problem, and then how are they solving it? And, you know, for example, I think, you know, Mike Boyle saw a lot of these problems in, in squatting, right? And one of the things that's crucial is that he was like, hey, we'll do this elevated squat. We get a lot of the squat stimulus. I think that he was spending time in the lunge shape, 
which is where most of his athletes were running. And they weren't lifters, they're runners and cutters, right? They, they actually ran for a living or skated for a living, right? Yeah, yeah. So they weren't just lifters. And the other thing is, you know, understanding that that's a busy gym trying to teach a lot of things. And what they found was, boy, they could get better stimulus faster with a trap bar deadlift, right? A more squatty deadlift. Mm. And with they could teach an upright torso squat with this, you know, with and they could get six hundred athletes through in an hour. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or in a day. And I, I think it's crucial that you're looking at the rest of the context and really understand, you know, the deep thinking that people have done about this. Yeah. And uh, you know, and and, and and stop being this pedantic. I mean it, that just the, the the knees out debate kills me. It still yeah, kills me. Yeah. Just to, to wrap up quick, Kelly, because I, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. What would you say have been the biggest lessons you, you've learned in your career so far? Uh, that people, one, have way more capacity than they think. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we can be much, I feel like conditioning is one of the biggest limiting factors to all sports. And so we always need to prioritize conditioning, but that conditioning can be intelligent and skill-based. Um, I feel like I've seen that we have been able to empower people to take real and significant cracks at solving their own dysfunction with very little poor repercussion, mm. right? That, uh, and that, um, you know, people have infinite capacity to change. You know, muscles and tissues are like obedient dogs, and all we have to do is give people the right information, and they will make better decisions. I mean, this, the conversation you and I are having right now wasn't even possible 10 years ago. Yeah. It wasn't possible five years ago. You know, Quinn is very sophisticated about his thinking. And that, that didn't even exist in the world without the writing and the thinking and the platforms like Greg Glassman and Mark Verstegen and, and, and Dan John and Pavel and, you know, who were out there beating the drums forever on stuff. Mm -hmm. Just recently you've kind of uh, got to know Greg Cook and, and you know, his line of thinking. Could you maybe just Recently? Just... You mean the last couple of years? Well, sorry, yeah, the last couple of years. Just for the listeners, could you maybe speak about how that happened and, and like what sort of relationship you guys have formed from that? Well, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, uh, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people who come in who are quick to criticize mm. and not quick to put up their own set of solutions and thinking, right? It's, yeah. easy, it's easy to try to poke holes in everyone and, you know, be an expert, you know, and, and yeah, grab yeah. your little internet fame. Yeah. And I think when Gray realized that I wasn't just around critiquing his life's work, but really trying to understand and also proposing my own set of thinkings around it and realizing that A, we were saying the same thing and B, we could solve a lot more dysfunction if we worked together, mm. you know, and really sort of, we, I think we can optimize, you know, the role of the physio in this whole thing, you know, and the role of physio in general and really could empower the strength conditioning coach to understand the bulk of the low-hanging fruit that physios have been living on. So when we started talking, realizing that we had a lot in common, we're, and, you know, we're in the same places, you know, um, we were just, you know, I was, we were just out at a, at a medical symposium for a professional baseball team, and, you know, I went first, and then the FMS went second, and so it turns out that, you know, we really, we have much more sort of power together when we say those things, yeah, you know, yeah. even if we're coming from, from different worlds, but, and then personally, he's just become such a, a sort of a mentor and dear friend, and just a great colleague, I really yeah. appreciate his brain. Definitely, yeah. Um, and by the way, I mean, how much easier is my job because Greg Cook has been out there? You know, uh, that's all. Yeah, saying. absolutely. Like he's he's been uh, like a humongous influence on me without question, and an absolute gentleman as well. 
Um, yeah. Just uh, going to ask two or three more, and then I'll let you go. And you can give me quick fire ones if if you're in a rush. Have you looked into any of the postal restoration institute stuff, Kelly? Well, you know, I remember everyone's trying to solve the same sets of problems. Mm. So whether you're you're doing postal restoration or it's Esther Go Clay, what we're really talking about is scale. Yeah. And you know what I think is that you know we need a movement system. Yoga is a postal restoration system. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, uh, good strength and conditioning as a postural restoration system, you know, and I, I think that's that's what's interesting about this is uh, you know what we need and my my critique of a lot of thinking is does it scale up? You know, there's a lot of people with, who walk around with pretty good positions until you put them under a little load, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, I think it was Mel Sif who said, "Hey, look, we can." We can take people who are in good positions that fall apart under just a little bit of load, and that, so you can really poke holes in their system, and it doesn't scale up quickly. You know, like Esther Gauclay likes this sort of anterior pelvic tilt when you sit. Just you know, just cranking, just hang on over, you know, on your joints a little bit. I'm like, well, that, that's great, but that's a learned position, and if I stand up and run out of that or lift out of that, I'm I'm doomed, right? Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't scale. And then my other issue is that you know a lot of the postures we see that strength athletes that people adopt may not be pathological but they're not ideal yeah. and so I think that's what's crucial is that people have found these stable positions they may or may not cause pathology but that should not be our barrier of entry to improving the mechanics yeah, does I, that make sense? yeah I just with, with the PRI stuff um, I, I, like, I don't know how familiar you are with it but like their whole sort of thing, you know, it comes down to the diaphragm and that where we're asymmetrical in our diaphragm. We breathe, you know, we breathe so many times during the day that we're naturally asymmetrical. But one of their kind of uh, famous sort of patterns is that everyone's sort of left hip is more anteriorly, anteriorly rotated. Because, because of your liver and the diaphragm, right. Yeah. I, I feel like, um, you know, people are right footed. People skate with their left foot forward. You plant and kick with your right foot. You drive with your right foot. Yeah, yeah. You're right-handed. You know, I mean, I just think it's a little bit more. I think the system is sort of self-correcting for that a yeah, little bit. Yeah. It, you know, that, I guess that's my feeling. And and if that's you know, is that a limiter? I, I don't know. I just don't think that. I think we can be a little more sophisticated about it. Yeah, I just the, the like the one the like the one area that they've kind of clar- not clarified, but they've trying to shed a bit of light on is, for instance, you could see someone with like with a what you think is a tight hip and their whole thing is that their whole ilium is out of position and it, it looks like their hip is tight but then when you do like their breathing corrections and you get their hips realigned their range of motion their hip has gone back to what's you know what quote unquote is a normal acceptable range whereas well, I, I would say that that falls right into my thinking I agree oh yeah yeah I was just, I was just wondering how you, how'd you look into it well, I think I think you know what we look at is you know movement patterning and organization first I yeah. can't tell what's going on and by the way Part of that system is your diaphragm. Do you, you know? You know they may be talking about diaphragm, and we're obsessed with breathing mechanics. But if your thoracic spine is stiff, yeah, you know you, you can't even breathe. Yeah. You know. Plus, let's talk about your pelvic floor. When was the last time you saw someone mobilize their pelvic floor with a soft ball? It doesn't even happen. <laughs> yeah. But that that's that's just as crucial as your diaphragm. That so sounds pretty. Breathing patterning, the stabilization patterning, absolutely has to be part of the question. And just as I said earlier, solving this problem of this guy's tight calves with his diaphragm and stabilization, couldn't agree more. But yeah. that fits into the schema that I was talking about. Hey, it's got to be motor control first. Yeah. Let's fix the motor control, then we can see what's what. Otherwise, we play a game called press and guess. Yeah. Finally, Kelly, just advice for any coaches out there and resources. So, like, And the, the advice could be anything. It doesn't have to be 
you know just training or rehab related it could be any any just uh, anything life related spirituality health whatever just some advice to everyone listening and then finally maybe some resources books webinars <laughs> seminars whatever uh well you know we've talked about some great thinkers here and there's some great writing out there you know read widely would be what i'd say you know like the talent code or you're reading the story of the human body or you know books like that you know um you read a lot you know, of fiction too though do you kelly yeah, I do. You know, those things kind of happen. They all, they all, it all feeds in. Yeah. You know, be, you know, I think the key is to be interested in the world, and that's a generalization. Yeah, yeah, but that's I, a great thing. What I would thing. Really say is that a lot of the coaches I see are so busy, and if you're if you're a strength coach at a professional for a professional sport, your time demands are insane. The number of time, you know, and what ends up happening is you end up sort of incidentally neglecting your own practice, and. It's vital that you're constantly experimenting on yourself and thinking. Yeah. I think this is just such a crucial part because it's easy to be like, well, you know, I'm not really competing now, I'm coaching, but you really need to be experimenting and understanding. And that at some point, I mean, if you're not if you're teaching squatting and you're not squatting, then that's that's we've got to change that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you don't have to be the strongest kid in the gym, you just have to be practicing what you're preaching. Yeah, I agree the other thing that. that we're become highly obsessed with is down regulation. And what we're seeing is that we're really good at going from zero to sixty, but we are really terrible at going from sixty to zero. And we're seeing that, you know, the sleep, the hydration, you just have to be interested in human performance. Yeah. You know, but you also need to be able to get athletes to down regulate, otherwise they all fry out. Yeah, yeah. And then just resources, Kelly, what books or DVDs, podcasts or anything, even a lifestyle tip, what what would you recommend? Uh, lifestyle tip, you're not you're not absorbing the water you're drinking. Put a pinch of sea salt in every glass of water you drink. Stop drinking plain water. Yeah. You know, you, uh, if you, as you've cleaned up your diet, you're not getting enough salts. What I think the way to view this is we don't see it as uh, a race of the 1% gains. It's not this little 1%, 1%, 1%. We see that there are big bottlenecks in performance, and that bottleneck is your sleep. That bottleneck is your, your hydration. That bottleneck is your nutrition. You know, John Berardi is really, he's really clever and says, you know, you know, once my once I know my athletes are eating enough veggies and lean proteins and quality fats, a little bit of ice cream does not mess up anything. Yeah. It doesn't. You know, but let's make sure that you're there. I mean, Dan John says what? Like you're not eating breakfast? What are we even talking about? Yeah. You know what I mean? I think so, on, I think on London Real too, you were like sleep. Yeah, just sleep. You know, in the last uh, last year and a half, I re- really made some changes. My wife and I were working way too hard and not sleeping and traveling too much and. In the last year and a half, I made a commitment to, um, you know, sleeping, and I sleep more than eight hours a night. Most of the time, eight and a half hours a night, and uh, my life has changed. Like, I feel younger. You know, my performance has gone back up. I'm training for the world championships and and outrigger paddling right now. I put on ten pounds of muscle. Like, you know, I mean, this stuff works yeah, every single yeah. time. You just well, have to. My, uh, yeah, my, 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 my go, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, well, just anyone who listens to my podcast knows me knows that like I'm a sleep sleep freak. Like I mean, uh, I've huge research done into sleep and circadian rhythms, and like everyone really jokes. Like right now it's dark here in Ireland, so like while the computer's on, I put on these lights that block the light yeah. and everything. So I do all do you, that type of stuff. Like so, do you, have, do you have the glasses on? Are you wearing the blue blockers? Yeah, the blue blockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think what we're really looking at is what can I control. You know, and these are the questions that become interesting for athletes that travel and. You know, yeah. I, the last thing I would say is get your phone out of your room. Your oh. phone does not belong in your yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Turn it. Turn all the electronics off. Dark, cold room. 
Uh, this is this is the thing I'm most recently obsessed with. It's a it's a device called the Chili Pad. Yeah. And uh, what it does is it circulates cold water, like 17 degrees, 18 degrees C, underneath the mattress. I think that's like uh, basically I run it at about 58 degrees. That is unbelievable. Fahrenheit, yeah. And it runs cold water, and literally, it doesn't matter if the room is hot or stuffy, because I'm sleeping and my core temperature is so low. I don't sweat anymore. I don't wake up hot. I don't flip the pillow over. I sleep like I'm dead. Yeah. That thing has changed my life. Jeez. What, 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 what's, what was the name of that, Kelly? Chili Pad. Chili Pad. C-H-I-L-I. The Chili Pad. Like, literally, I don't even have a relationship with these guys. I just, I saw it, saw the truth of it, bought it now, and, like, literally, I recommend it to every one of my athletes. I have never seen as significant a change in my own personal experience of my sleep quality. Like, wow. I look forward to crawling into an ice-cold bed. And, I, and it, it's amazing. It'll go all the way. It'll go even colder, but I don't need it. I mean, like, you know, we tell people we want you to sleep somewhere between 62 and 68 degrees. Yeah. But as soon as you're under the covers, that ambient temperature of the room is is, is irrelevant because you've just created a little 100-degree microclimate, right? It's like yeah, 38. Yeah, yeah. You're dying. And as soon as we, you know, take that down, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what the difference is. Have you ever looked into any of Jack Cruz's work, Dr. Jack Cruz? You ever heard of him? I don't think so. Is he is he the like cold water immersion guy? He's a cold thermogenesis guy. He'd speak at a lot of the paleo things, but like I mean, he's he's like way ahead of the posse. Like he's talking about how quantum physics runs the world and all this. He's a neurosurgeon, but his big thing is like you know he looks at everything through an evolutionary lens. And one of his big things is you know thermogenesis. You know, hot season, cold season, summer, winter, high carb, low carb. But he's very big into this cold oh, term- yeah. cold thermogenesis. So your your chili pad makes a lot of sense because. You know, cold. His his sort of thing is that in in a human evolutionary perspective, the winter time brought cold, darkness, and uh, cold and darkness, and those things had a sleep and in cold, and they used to reverse like things like your high insulin and the bit of fat you put on during the summer. Like his whole thing is we live in perpetual summer now. Like we've got our artific- right. artificial right. light, heated homes, uh, global well, global transport yeah. of carbohydrates, and we don't have that uh, we don't have that yin yang relationship in our seasons anymore. And I think the other interesting thing is, uh, you know, one of the ways that we've seen that to get athletes out of the sympathetic fight state. Mm. I know, I know, plenty of athletes. The only way they can actually go to sleep is to smoke marijuana. You know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, look, yeah. these are the these are the best athletes. I mean, people may be shocked at that, but to know that the best athletes are so keyed up, they play at night and they can't sleep unless they downregulate with marijuana. Yeah. We've seen that some some gut smashing, some somatovisceral release, rolling around on a ball, smash your gut, kicks on your parasympathetic nervous system, soft tissue does. But also, cold water immersion is miraculous at resetting your nervous system. Yeah, that's what that's essential. He does. Tony Tony Robbins also said he does the same thing. Oh yeah, totally. He does it in the morning though. Yeah. Tony soaks in the morning. But our idea is, hey, look, don't get yourself all hot and go to bed. You know, people are like, get hot and start sweating, you'll cool off. I'm like, uh, once I get hot, I stay hot. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, this, anyway, going going to bed, being cold all night, it's miraculous. Brilliant. Kelly, I won't keep any longer. Thanks so much for coming on today and um, just. Really appreciate your time. Uh, I only expected an hour, and you, you, you've well uh, given me 25 extra minutes. You've, you've uh, gone over your oh, of time. The, the, the poor people listening, I, uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for your time, man. No, no problem at all. Kelly, you take care, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you know when this is open. I'll send you on the link. Cheers. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. That's it for today's episode, guys, with Kelly Surrett. Remember to keep supporting the podcast by leaving reviews on iTunes, and also you can support the show by going to upmentorship.com. Guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong.